Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome to heaven. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast-type situation through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and don't tell my mum, she only thinks I've gone out for a pint of milk. I mean, I'm assuming rice milk. Soy milk in my household, yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Well, Luke, I'm giving it 101%, even though that is not possible, but I am Ash Versus. Although, in fairness, my mum does complain when she comes around to my house because soy milk doesn't taste very nice in a cup of tea. I mean, you know, begs to differ slightly, but I'll buy her milk when she comes around. Anywho, this episode... Rice Dream, mate. Rice Dream. We should get sponsorship, but Rice Dream <laughs> works well for cooking and for tea. Well, I like soy milk in tea, but bearing in mind, like, I don't have much milk in my tea anyway like i have a dash i like to show some milk to my cup of tea and that, that's about the sort of amount of milk i actually want you show the cup of tea a picture of a soybean or a cow i mean exactly, showing, a, yeah. showing a cup of tea a picture of a cow that's still vegan well like, that's it I, I just show it to the picture i show my cup of tea to the picture and i'll be like that's enough milk for you tea now where's my biscuits i want to do some dunking anywho this episode aired on the 2nd of november 1995 mortal kombat 3 remains top of the console charts and we now know pocahontas is still top of the uk box office but we do have a new number one at the top of the singles charts as coolio featuring lv is taking us to gangster's paradise yeah i just wrote top movie pocahontas combat so i went through that wikipedia list it's the entire year has changed so you know like we did our episode zero episode where we went through like the number one movies all of those have changed as well we missed out on interview with a vampire natural born killers the brady bunch movie bad boys congo and fucking street fighter on the plus side we missed out on street fighter oh, well i could have read some excerpts from a book i've got a book that's sat here now doing f- all because i can't read from it anymore <laughs> 
Oh, I'm sure we'll find a way to, to, to cover Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat because, Luke, that Patreon count is rising. Yeah, but too many people keep backing us. Pack it in, lads. Stop liking us. Go away. <laughs> but Gangster's Paradise. Oh, what a song. What a film it's attached to because it's attached to Dangerous Minds as well, part of the soundtrack for that. It's a sample-rific song. It contains bits of Stevie Wonder's Pastime Paradise, sampling both chorus, instrumentation and some lyrics, although albeit with altered meaning and... This is a song that will not go away. It was in the Sonic the Hedgehog trailer that came out for the first movie. Admittedly, it was in the Sonic the Hedgehog trailer and people immediately went, what the hell? Why is Kangster's Paradise attached to a blue hedgehog? It's very much a shrug. 90s? I, I mean, yeah, 90s, but also, I mean, I, I don't know, is Sonic Gangster? Uh, no, like it was a really weird choice. Um, but like, it is such a good song, though, that you could probably put it in any trailer and it'll be right at home. Because it is like this. I remember this song coming out so vividly and being at my nan's house and, you know, watching Top of the Pops and Coolio wasn't ever going to be there to perform it live on Top of the Pops. So you just got the music video all the time, which was no bad thing. It was a cracking music video. It really was. But this song, not only was it oh, the UK number one, it was the biggest selling single of 1995 over in the US. VH1 in 2008 ranked it number 38 of their 100 greatest songs of hip hop. NME listed it as number 100 in their ranking of 100 best songs of the 90s. Now, I think that's fair because one, NME, you know, very British sensibilities and taste, but also there were a lot of really good songs list, released in the 90s to make it anywhere into that top 100. It's still, I think, it's like people just going, oh, they were only 76 in the kind of like world's sexiest men. I'm like, mate, there are <coughs> billions of men out there to make 76 on that list. Yeah, I, when you put it that way, it is actually quite a big achievement. But it sold over 5 million copies in the US, UK and Germany alone. Coolio performed it at the Billboard Music Awards and at the Grammys. And there were some notable parodies, including, of course, one from Weird Al Yankovic with Amish Paradise, which was released the following year. It charted in the US and Coolio had a bit of a piss fit about it. Even Ezekiel thinks that my mind is gone. I'm a man of the land. I'm into discipline. Got a Bible in my hand and a beard on my chin. But if I finish all of my chores and you finish thine, then tonight we're gonna party like it's 1699. Amongst the Weird Al songs that would be downloaded on on Napster and Kazar and LimeWire and all that sort of business. It was always Amish Paradise, Smells Like Nirvana, and all of the Michael Jackson songs. Well, in Coolio's defense, okay, here's what went down. Weird Al says he had permission. He says he reached out via his record label. The record label went, yeah, Coolio's fine with it. Coolio says, nah, mate, didn't, bit pissed off. And it's actually one of the reasons why Yankovic went on to seek approval for his parodies, not via record labels, but essentially from the artist directly. If he couldn't get a phone call or a face-to-face, -face, he wasn't going to do it. Coolio himself has said that he's actually apologised to Weird Al for the way he behaved, stating that objecting to the parody was probably one of the least smart things I've done over the years. And I'm like, oh, I don't know, mate, have you seen your acting career? He was in Batman and Robin. Well, well... I think to say he's he is in Batman and Robin, but I wouldn't say like, oh yeah, Coolio from Batman and Robin. He is in that blink and you'll miss it cameo. He's in Dracula 3000. That's more of an issue. But he is Quanzabot in Futurama. So 
Redemption. It was better than Buster Rhymes' acting career. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're both thinking of Halloween, aren't we? Trick or treat, motherfucker. The other thing to know about uh, Gangster's Paradise as well is that it beat out one of the defining songs of the 1990s for that number one position because on October 30th, Oasis released Wonderwall and it only, I say it only, it reached number two being pipped to the post by Gangster's Paradise. And I always find that funny because I would have thought, if you'd have asked me, did Wonderwall reach number one, I would have said yes because it was fucking <coughs> everywhere. But I guess that shows the power of Gangster's Paradise at the time. I genuinely thought that during our run through, of this period of the 90s, would we be arse to elbow talking about Oasis and Blur and Pulp and whatnot? Barely a whifter. I know, right? Like, we get, I think we get an Oasis song at the top of the charts, but you would have thought it was Wonderwall. Yeah, you, you would have thought, but I don't know. Is it a song that was brought to life by the live performances? Because when you think of Wonderwall, my brain always goes to like thinking of the Glastonbury appearances and the crowd singing along and stuff Nebworth. like that. Rather than, the, yeah, Nebworth, exactly. Rather than the studio performances. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, the only reason I said that is because, as I said, it was just getting so much radio play. That was a song that you could not escape at the time. I'm sure we'll find another way to talk about it. I mean, we just did. <laughs> Also, on November 1st, four more satellite and cable channels have launched in the United Kingdom, including, Ash, I know you're ready for this one, European Business News. Mate, I'd, when I was trying to sell my parents on like getting a, getting a satellite dish or cable, which would have admittedly involved running a cable all the way out to a rural area, which wasn't going to happen, it was all about that business news. Never mind Sky, never mind Sci-Fi, we'll get to that later, never mind UK Gold. I need a business news, mate. We also had Sky Sports, Gold, Playboy TV, and the Paramount Channel. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Paramount. I think you like this guy. Well, I hope he has a sense of humor. He's very nice. Uh, Paramount is unique. It's completely different from anything else. It's the sort of channel that will make people stop when they're surfing through. You know, they'll go, what the hell is this? Oh, Pinky, I love it when you talk like that. Thanks for that opening. Do you think this is good for your eyes? 10.30 at night, what do you do? You come home from the pub, perhaps maybe a little bit later, and you switch the television on. I'll watch some TV. It'll help me to re- Relax, fearless leader. Paramount Channel, I remember watching a lot of during a period of dot-com crash unemployment in the early 2000s. It was a case of go out, go around the job kind of agencies, maybe have a couple of morning interviews, and then it was back and scouring job sites and taking care of household chores while the Paramount Channel was on in the background with King of Queens, Mad About You, Just Shoot Me, and probably Everybody Loves Raymond. Only one of those did I ever really give a damn about. Mad About You. Yeah, Mad About You. Helen yeah. Hunt. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, like, looking at the opening lineup, because I found the launch day promo video for it online, and the opening lineup was an entertainment special with Elton John, followed by I Love Lucy, followed by Bosom Buddies, brackets with Tom Hanks, followed by Laverne and Shirley. That is what Paramount Channel was in 1995. Wow. I mean, that's, it's a lineup. It is a lineup. Like the actual video itself that kind of came before it 
like the guy who's hosting it is being like, this is the sort of channel that you're going to go out on a night out, come back with your kebab and sit down and watch. And I'm like, yeah, because when I've had a kebab, what I'm looking for is I Love Lucy. But they do have lots of clips in there of Ren and Stimpy. And I'm like, that's the sort of thing I'm going to be looking for after a night out. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about video packages when we get to the news section, because... <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a hell of a video package. I don't remember seeing much of it, though. Uh, right, before we get into the show, what's happening in this month's magazine? Because we, we have a new issue now, surely? We do have a new issue, and uh, Destruction Derby and various racing games are the cover star with Enter the Death Race, talking about driving the best new racers to the limit. But we've got a new news section, Luke. And boy, howdy, do we have some exciting news because after much speculation, Sega have released details of their Genesis slash Mega Drive compatible handheld. The Nomad is a 16-bit portable unit with a three and a quarter inch full color screen that will run over 600 Mega Drive titles. It features six button controls and is designed to be used with six AA batteries. With six AA batteries or the Nomad power back rechargeable battery that gives three hours of game time. Wow, a whole three hours. Or an AC adapter. But the best news of all is that it allows proper two-player games as there is a port in it for a second controller. So you can plug in a Mega Drive controller and have two players on one handheld. On one three-inch screen. Yep, living the dream, Luke. And it says, soon to be available in the US is Sega's much-awaited handheld Mega Drive unit called the nomad and there is a very badly pixelated picture of it with a copy of comic zone stuck out the back it's cool that it's featured in a uk magazine here like i does it talk about if it's getting a uk release because i like it doesn't but does it mention one in there no it does not Okay, I wonder if they just assumed at the time that it would get a UK release. I think they were hedging their bets because Sega Europe were not making smart decisions at this point because immediately across the page, Sega won't give away games. While in the US, Sega are giving away two extra games with the Saturn, Sega Europe claim they don't need to follow suit. American owners can still get Virtua Fighter Remix free when they register their Saturn, but now they will also get Clockwork Knight and International Victory Goal. That's not a bad little bundle. That is essentially $150 worth of free software. Meanwhile, over here, a spokesman for Sega Europe commented that there are no plans to change the strategy in the UK to close the gap on the PlayStation's £100 price advantage. Sega Europe remain convinced that the package of a Saturn and Virtua Fighter for £499 is strong enough to take on Sony's PlayStation and Demo Disc for £399. No, no it's not. And we actually had that bit in Games Master a couple of weeks ago, didn't it? They said they were knocking 50 quid off the price. So they clearly were willing to change their strategy somewhat. Like Sega America are like, we like selling consoles and we like money. We want to make money. And Sega Europe are like, but what is money? Really? What is we don't we don't need money. We're fine at our price point having the shit kicked out of us by Sony. I think by this point they were like, we've already come second. It's fine. Mate, they don't even come second. I know. Well they didn't think the bloody Ultra 64 was going to be as good as it was. Speaking of nice segue, especially Thank given you. you can't even see the bloody page. Ultra Kong exposed. 
Sources close to Nintendo claim that a 3D Donkey Kong game is planned for the Ultra 64. It's likely to make an appearance at Nintendo's exhibition alongside LucasArts Shadow of the Empire, a first-person 3D arcade adventure. It's claimed that both games will show off the Ultra's talents to the full, producing 3D graphics that put FX chip titles to shame. Expect an avalanche of texture-mapped barrels in the very near future. Another tantalising tidbit is that Konami have already signed up to produce an Ultra version of their Polygon soccer game, Perfect Eleven, a.k.a. Goldstorm, a game that mm. we're becoming very familiar with here on the podcast. Absolutely, yeah, we get that again in this episode. I'm interested that they mentioned Shadows of the Empire there because that was a great game on the Ultra 64. That was that was kind of a launch title for me. It's interesting as well because like the two titles that you said there, I was, I was curious by, because I was just reading this in my research, it was going to be in next week's or like a news item that comes later on this month. But I don't think those two titles are shown at that event. According to Wikipedia, they show just two titles and it was Mario 64 and Kirby Ball 64. So I wonder if they had plans for the Shadows of the Empire and Donkey Kong and they just never actually came to fruition. Maybe, or maybe they were just like too, they, they were just too early in development. They hadn't quite I made it yet. It might be because like, I mean, Donkey Kong 64 doesn't come out for a little while yet. Yeah, I mean, that's a late Nintendo 64 game. I don't even think we'll get it in our timeline. No, but I mean, but Shadows of the Empire, that's... Great game. That's absolutely great game. I've actually got the book because it was, of course, a big multimedia thing. And I think we do get to talk about it in a bit more depth. I think we hit it during our timeline. I hope we bloody do. Because there was a book, there was a comic, there was an album, there was the video game. There was everything short of a movie. And... It was pretty good. Uh, just to confirm as well, Donkey Kong 64 gets released in the UK on December 6th, 1999. So it's well out of our timeline. Even up in heaven, the postman's sack is every bit as bulging as anywhere else you can imagine. And we've got two particularly fine letters this week. One from Andrew Thompson from Islington, who says, Dear Dominic, I completed Donkey Kong Country on my second attempt. Is this a record? Well, no, Andrew. The second coming by the Stone Roses is a record. This is merely an above-average games-playing feat. Second letter is from David Wells up in Glasgow. Dear Dominic, I bought a new Sony PlayStation, but it doesn't work. When I switch it on, instead of playing fantastic 32-bit software, it simply starts to smell and moan about life not being as good as the old days. See, what you've done there, David, you've actually bought an old-age pensioner by mistake. Not to worry, if you take it back to the shop, I'm sure they'll exchange it as long as you have that all-important receipt. All right, mate? Even in heaven, the postman sack is as bulging as our end-of-season wrap-ups, although we don't tend to get... We don't tend to give snarky responses to ours. This actually feels a lot like the letters pages in a magazine that we go through on this podcast. I don't know. Were they that snarky? I don't think they were snarky. I just thought they were kind of... They were funny. I mean, I they got a laugh out of me because... You know, first up, Andrew Thompson from Islington saying, oh, I completed Donkey Kong Country on my second attempt. Is this a record? I love the response of no. Second coming by the Stone Roses. Now that's a record. Just an average games playing feat. If he'd said I completed it on my first attempt, I would say then that's snarky. But second attempt, mm, is it is it snarky? What I mean by snarky is they're not giving real answers. I mean, you're assuming these are real letters. Well, exactly. They are using this to just give joke answers to. They're basically just using it as setup so they can give a punchline. Like, you know, the second one being like, what you've ended up buying is an old age pension and not a PlayStation. But I'm sure you can get it exchanged if you've still got that receipt. 
I thought that was a really, I thought the first one was funnier than the second one, but you can't argue the sort of slight wordplay that's almost there in the second one. Yeah, I see. I I kind of liked the the second one because it kind of went a bit surrealist of going, oh no, you know what you've done? You bought a pensioner? Yeah, you bought an old age, you don't buy a PlayStation, you bought an old age pensioner. Yeah, it uh, sort of works. I mean, there are a lot of them wandering around Rombolos. It's an easy mistake to make. They're always lurking by the fan heaters. I just wish they'd stop getting sold. I mean, to be fair, you've got quotas to meet, mate. It's like, can I, can I buy this? That's a pe- I mean, sure. Would you like extended warranty? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Well, let's head on over to Games Master for our first challenge. This event is only for those with nerves of steel. The game I've chosen is Puzzle Bubble a charming Neo-Geo game in which players have to destroy the advancing bubbles before they're squashed into oblivion. The beastly bubbles can only be dispatched in groups of three or more of the same colour, so it's only by shooting the right colour bubble in an existing group that their onslaught can be stopped. To make matters even worse, I decided to inflict three simultaneous games on our hapless contestant. Only by ridding all three screens of their bubbles before they make contact with the ground will they earn the golden joystick. It's one of my toughest challenges ever. <laughs> Good luck. Now, I remember when you and I went to the filming of Games Master Series 8, uh, I was early into my paternity leave uh, after the little one was born and I was spending my maternity leave watching all of series five just so I you know I'd, I'd do my watch through and then I would take my notes much later on and I was just basically there just enjoying like I would take the kid down for a, like a morning nap and stuff and I would just watch Games Master and I remember chatting with you about it because I don't know if you actually started on your notes at this point and I was like there is a challenge that comes up in series five where a guy plays three copies of Puzzle Bubble at the same time. And it's absolutely brilliant. And I think my wording to you was, it's the sort of challenge I would absolutely love to attempt. This challenge is an absolute joy to watch. It's not so great to try and summarise into a podcast because so much of it is visual. But the presentation and the way it's done, while not what I would do, makes it very interesting. But I guess let's rewind a little bit because... This is a challenge to not just play one game of Puzzle Bobble, not two, but three, simultaneously across three different machines, which are on three separate plinths, as we find out. But it's introduced as a Neo Geo game, which is a half-truth. Because in Japan, it was developed by Taito, but was originally released on their B-System hardware. So it was kind of a platform that pretty much only existed in Japan. But when it came to the international releases, it was licensed to SNK who did a port of it. They actually upgraded the graphics and changed some of the music and sound effects. And then that was the version released internationally and indeed the version most commonly ported as Puzzle Bobble. And I think even that got re-released back into Japan. So then in Japan, you could play Puzzle Bobble on two separate platforms in the arcade before it got the absolute slew of home ports and indeed sequels. It was actually one of the first, either this or one of the sequels was one of the first titles I booted up on my Sega Saturn after I got it modded. Love a bit of Puzzle Wobble. 
this was my first game I got for my PlayStation. Well, Buster Move 2 was the first game I got for my PlayStation when I got it in 1998, and I was obsessed with it. Me and my mates used to spend hours playing Buster Move 2. It's just one, it's like Tetris. It's just an evergreen game. Simple game mechanic, but difficult to master. Kind of easy to pick up. That's exactly it. Yeah, like it is, it's just so much fun to play. I also love as well that because we had it as Buster Move 2 here, when Buster Move gets released over in Japan, the rhythm dancing game, it got ported over here as Buster Groove. Which does really sound like kind of a Jive Bunny type mega mix artist. Oh, mate. And also, I mean, actually, I'm going to quickly check here. I'm going to Wikipedia. Oh, oh, we might. We're not. Oh, we'll sort of get it in our timeline. It's a shame because I, I could I could talk for a while about Buster Groove because there are parts of that soundtrack that are still stuck in my head now. We still need to work out what we're going to do post Games Master. Um, I've got a couple of ideas. You've probably got a couple of ideas. But there are so many things that we almost hit, but not quite. Or that fall between seasons. Or just the timing doesn't work out. We'll, we'll work out a way to get to them, just to kind of like keep beating this dead horse. Yeah, I'm not sure we're going to do uh, Series 8, Episode 0, where we cover the months in between the end of Series 7 and the start of Series 8. Just going from like February 1998 all the way through to November 2021. Mate, that could be another two, three years of content right there. <laughs> but this is, I mean, they, they talk about it a lot here. You know, Games Master says it and Dom reiterated, this is a tricky, tricky challenge. Because, like, you know, Buster Move, sorry, Puzzle Bubble isn't exactly a nails game. It kind of gets, you get, can be overwhelmed by it very quickly and very easily, but it's not a nails game. But playing three of them simultaneously, when the way that the game works, if you've never played it before, it's on a time mechanism. So if you don't fire a ball, the game will fire it for you after a certain amount of time, no matter where you're pointing to. And also, the ceiling is lowering. So you have got to be across all three of them simultaneously really so that it's not firing a ball into a place you don't want it because that is going to scupper you when you go across to your next machine i wonder if i mean it must be possible to do but this is a challenge that can so easily get away from you quicker than you can imagine we'll get to it in a little bit but i think this challenge is possible but not the way they've got it set up but we'll get to that because first of all we need to meet our competitor who has one of the best names of the season. And here to attempt what is probably the trickiest challenge we've ever had on this piece of quality television. Please welcome bloke with top name, Damon Champ. <laughs> now Damon, a fantastically tough challenge this, I reckon you need to be quite fit. Do you, do you exercise at all? Yeah, I try to exercise about three times a week at least. What kind of exercise is um, that? Regular exercise like push-ups, sit-ups. Um, uh -huh. Do you pump iron at all? I've done a bit of weightlifting in the past, so I still do it from time to time. Quite a smart bloke. Yeah, I dress casually when I go out sometimes. I actually meant intelligence, but that's a very fine answer, though, yeah. David. That's good. That's a letter thinking. Yeah, he's already a winner. He's called Damon Champ. We've got Omen and Winner in the same kind of name. It's absolutely brilliant. Top name. And 
Dom meets him and says, you know, oh, do you need to be fit to take on a challenge like this? And Damon's like, yeah, well, you know, I try to exercise three times a week, push-ups, weightlifting. And Dom says, oh, are you a smart bloke? And I love Damon's response because he takes it kind of like in the street vernacular of like dapper, smartly dressed. Whereas Dom went, no, have you got grey matter? Are you, are you clever? But he doesn't shoot him down for it. He's just like, no, you know, Dom loves his wordplay. Well played. If anything, him getting that wrong and sort of like, you know, changing the word up on his head or the meaning of the word up on his head show that he's got a very quick wit and good intelligence. So it answered Dom's question and also impressed him. Also, definitely speaking the truth because nice manga video cap. I had these, I've written here in my notes, nice manga hat there, mate. Yeah, embroidered as well. That's going to last. Oh yeah, that was 100% like a free gift that he got, probably for signing up for something. Like, you know, you signed up, you get th- sent three videos plus a free hat. Manga video's back, and it's got a free hat. <laughs> Blokes and ladies who wear Star Trek t-shirts are beside themselves with joy this week as the sci-fi cable channel comes on air. Devoted entirely to science fiction and fantasy, the channel offers films, TV shows, factual programs and cartoons. They're modern, state-of-the-art movies as well as some vintage black and white material, proving you don't need multi-million pound special effects to make something which saddles will attend conventions about 400 years from now wearing open-toed sandals. And we got to talk about this a few episodes back when it launched here in the UK, and the footage that is shown here is the footage that I found on YouTube because I played audio from this when we uh, covered it in the episode. And it is, it's a video package I've actually watched a couple of times now because it is just like the best of sci-fi in this sort of two and a half minute bumper. It's really, really awesome. I mean, there were multiple Star Treks in there. We've got some, uh, I think, weird science is in there because you get when the mutants um, invade the parties in there. Yeah, American Um, Werewolf in London's in there. This Island Earth, lovely to see some of the classic there. I love This Island Earth in its original and its Mystery Science Theatre 3000 version. And I do wonder how many of these films actually did get shown on Sci-Fi UK? Because my main memory of Sci-Fi UK, at least in the beginning, is very, very low rent. But I only actually saw it for a good amount of time when I was visiting a friend's house. And it was the same friend that had um, Bravo and therefore would give me off-air recordings of ECW Hardcore TV. So I was generally only seeing the fairly late, the kebab kind of timeline stuff, same stuff you mentioned earlier, because it broadcast from 8am to 2am here in the UK, but it didn't hit satellite properly until 1998. It was on for a few hours a day on Sky, then Sky Digital launched, and that was when it suddenly went woomph and was available to everyone. Yeah, because it was sharing space with other channels, basically. It was sharing satellite space with other channels. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned earlier that I watched a lot of Paramount. I think sci-fi was also fairly close behind. I can tell you that, like, on its opening night, I'm pretty sure it had either Alien or Aliens. I think it was Alien. So I think it did It did have a few big hitters, but I would imagine that the majority of the sci-fi channel was your B-movie stuff from the 40s, 50s, and 60s that you won't have heard of uh, unless you see it on the sci-fi channel the sort of stuff actually that mst3k would that was their bread and butter i mean a lot of their early kind of like daily shows were archive material lost in space hulk bock rogers mainly films from paramount and mca vaults there were notable exceptions to that you just mentioned alien of course that's a fox joint but they also supplemented it with anime Anime was shown over there. Uh, Things like uh, Robotech, Bionic 6, G-Force. But sadly, as the channel moved further away from its American parent, they actually dropped a lot of those. 
which is a shame because they were one of the only places you could see that stuff. Oh, you've got to imagine, Damon Champ is all over the Sci-Fi Channel. I mean, I've, I would have to imagine with that manga video hat, he would be, you know, he'd be doing watching that while doing his push-ups. Oh yeah, absolutely, practicing on Buster Move. I like the Sci-Fi Channel. I don't necessarily like the Siffy channel and the rebranding it went through and then there was the whole dabbling the american network had with wrestling which is more in your wheelhouse but i think regrettable yeah when ecw first went to sci-fi the deal there was that you've got to try and incorporate sci-fi elements into the show so you had a gimmick you had a wrestler kevin thorne who was then a vampire and you at the first episode features the sandman beating up an actual zombie it was not a great first step for for ECW. No, it really, really wasn't. And sci-fi is not what it was. Uh, They did have some decent original programming for a while. They did have some decent original movies, but a lot of it's now asylum pictures. A lot of it is mockbusters. And it's like, when you are literally running, you know, when when, when you have programming that's being looked at, it's like, well, we can't run you on our main network. We'll put you on the Sharknado channel. That's exactly it. Like when we were watching Raw when it was on Sci-Fi Channel for the couple of weeks that it was, like Resident Alien was their big show. And I've actually been told since that it's it's quite a good show, but oh, it looked cheap as all get outs. Like the cheap aspects of Buffy would have looked at it and been like, freaking hell, that looks cheap. Uh, it didn't impress me much, uh, as someone might have said. I mean, when I had Virgin TV for the, the brief period of time that I had it when I was living in London, I would go to like the Siffy channel to see what was on. And more often than not, it was just the 80s Twilight Zone. And I think it says a lot about the sci-fi channel when that's probably the best version of the Twilight Zone that they could get was the not very good version of the Twilight Zone. Yeah, because money's... Exactly, yeah. It's cheaper to buy from MGM than to buy the proper good one. And then, no, you know, no one wants the mid-2000s one. Yeah, it's like, oh, cool, we've got the license to show Knight Rider. No, not that Knight Rider. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, Dom's here basically to make fun of people who go to conventions like us. Although I will say, he does mock open-toe sandals and socks. And I know for a fact that Dom does now wear open-toe sandals and socks. You live long enough to see yourself become the villain. <laughs> Virtua Cop 2, the long-awaited sequel to the arcade classic, quite literally ran along to an arcade show this month and said, All right, guys, the standard Virtua Cop style remains with a real club bad guy day out frenzy. There's also new features, including a subway train shootout. You can even relive those happy Paisley days with top car chase shooting action. People everywhere can expect to gather around this cabinet sometime next year. Long-awaited sequel to an arcade classic. It's fucking brand new, mate. It's been 12 months since Virtua <laughs> Cop came out. How could it... I mean, I suppose that's how quickly video game entertainment's working now. It, it's kind of like, oh, 12 months? That's like, that's a century ago. Long-awaited. Or is Dom like the Marty McFly in this situation? He sat down and be like, oh, I've seen this one. It's a classic. And then, you know, we're sat here as the little kid being like, what are you talking about? You've seen it. It's brand new. Maybe. Are we implying that Dominic Diamond travels in time? Well, maybe he knew that he would eventually wear open toe sandals and socks. And so he's like, well, I'm going to write this joke in now and make fun of my future self. I like to think that old Dominic came back to see young Dominic like kind of Biff Tannen. But with a, I, I don't know why he didn't bring a sports almanac back with him. I don't know. I think that would have been a much smarter move than going, by the way, Virtua Cop 2. 
it's going to be a banger and a lot of people are going to look forward to it. Instead, he just brought in plane tickets to Canada. Smart move also. Exactly, there you go. It was the best thing he could have done. Anyway, yeah, you're right. It popped up at an arcade show, uh, more of the same but refined, subway shootouts, car chasing. And interestingly, as of February 1995, uh, Fumio Kurakawa of AM2 said that we're not sure if there will be a Virtua Cop 2. However, since the original Virtua Cop did well at the arcades, we're certainly thinking about something to follow it up. Now, February to September, that's like less than seven months. Either the development cycle on this was insane, or he was lying out of his bum hole. It could go either way, really, couldn't it? Because I suppose that everything is sort of there for you already. Like the mechanics are already there for you. Like the engine is is already there. Virtual Cop 2 plays the same as Virtual Cop. You've just got to add new, uh, you know, just different coats of paint to it. So maybe it was a they were able to have a quicker work cycle for it. Maybe, maybe. Um, one thing I can tell you is that in nineteen in November nineteen ninety five, it was listed as being the second most successful dedicated arcade game of the month and became the highest grossing dedicated arcade video game of the entirety of nineteen ninety six in Japan. Sold over seven thousand arcade cabinets worldwide including 4,000 in Japan and 3,000 overseas. Now, 7,000 doesn't sound like a lot, but that's dedicated Virtua Cop 2 cabinets, not including, as far as I know, redresses for Virtua Cop 1 cabinets, which I imagine would have also happened. But less than a year away, the Saturn version was on the way and actually was demonstrated in May 1996 at E3, although only the first level was playable at that point because... AM2's resources had been shifted off Virtua Cop 2 onto a game we will talk about later, Virtua Fighter Kids. Meanwhile, in Japan, the We Love Toshinden, but we're bored with the graphics gang, are rejoicing over the free CD that comes with the Ultimate Fighting Guide tipbook. It contains a patch for the game, providing a choice of different outfits and even giving rather large heads to the characters. Whatever next. Which looks a little bit like, well, not too dissimilar, what we get in our next feature here, which is that as a demo CD that came with an ultimate fighting tip book over in Japan that patches Toshinden to give you some new outfits and basically big head mode, which makes it look a little bit like Virtual Fighter Kids. Man, we are nailing the segues today. Absolutely on fire. Hope it makes it into the edit. But this must be either a patch that lives on the memory card, like you put the CD in, it boots up and it copies some extra data to your memory card, or it's a specific save file that unlocks on-disk content. Mm. And if it was just kind of a big head mode, I'd go, that could fit on a memory card. But if it includes extra costumes... That to me feels like we are seeing an early and decidedly unwelcome iteration of on-disc DLC. Yeah, it, it sort of depends. I suppose the demo disc would have been free, but you did have to buy the magazine for it. So it is, yeah, it is paid for, isn't it? It's not free. Yeah, the disc is free, but it's like going, oh, there's a free demo disc on the official PlayStation magazine. How much is the magazine? Six quid. Yeah, but we do. We will get Virtual Fighter Kids, in fact. We get it as a challenge in Series 6, along with, as we well know, Virtual Cop 2. I'm looking forward to it. This is a really exciting time to be covered games. Don't get me wrong, I love talking about Amiga stuff and Timedall and some of the early stuff with the Nezes, but just seeing how quickly we're galloping along at this point and how quickly games are evolving, it's gripping stuff. Top tough challenge type situation then, Damon Champ has got to clear three screens of Puzzle Bobble, normally that wouldn't be a problem for him, but he has to play these three all at the same time. Best of luck Damon, off you go. I have just one, not 
not complaints, criticism, constructive criticism for this challenge here. And that is that we don't have a color commentator. Dom is doing this all on his own, which I think knackers him out by the end of this. It does have quite a nice like, frenetic page because Dom's essentially behind him telling him which screen he should run to next. But what I would have loved from this is almost like what they do on Sky Sports News when they haven't got live coverage of the games and you've got a, a different pundit for each game that's currently going on. So you could have had Rick Henderson looking at one screen, Dave Perry looking at another screen, and someone else looking at the third screen. And you would essentially just cut to them to be like, Dave, what's going on on screen three? Oh, mate, you should see what's going on here. The yellows are really overtaking the screen here. We need to go across to Rick at screen two and kind of commentate it that way. That could have worked really well. I, I, I actually liked the Dom doing this one-handed because it kind of gave me a real Roy Castle on record breakers kind of feel to it. It was very much like Dom wanted this guy to win. He was, you know, impartiality out the window. He was helping. And part of me wonders if maybe the reason they did it the way it did is the same problem we're going to encounter, which is there isn't a huge amount to say about this challenge because it's all on screen. And it's all about just timing and just trying to kind of like spin multiple plates. It's a case of, oh, well, he goes to this, he goes to this screen and the colors aren't in his favor. Oh, well, onto the next screen. There's not a huge amount to say. But the criticism I do have is to do with the setup. And it's purely that you've got three separate Neo Geos, Neo Geo CDs, in fact, possibly because it was cheaper. And they've all got their own television. They've all got their own joystick. So far, so fine, right? Mm -hmm. They're low. He's really got to crouch down to get to that job because, you know, it's the arcade stick, but he's got to really crouch down low to get to it. They could have done with being another half a foot to a foot higher because he can't just move. He has to move and crouch, move and crouch, move and crouch. And I reckon he would have done it if they'd been slightly higher or if there'd just been three arcade cabinet versions side to side. Also, the visual of kind of having a, a semicircle of three arcade cabinets would have been really cool. Certainly yeah. much cooler than precariously balanced personal video monitors and a Neo Geo CD on a mock column. But I was sat here making my notes at my desk and um, I've kind of got my spinny chair and I've got quite a desk space in front of me. And I was just thinking, if I had a joystick here on the left, a joystick in the middle where my keyboard is and a joystick on the right where currently my mouse is, I think I could spin between all three and actually do pretty well, certainly do as well as he did, because it would just be a case of focus, attention, focus, attention. It wouldn't be having to think so much about um, physical positioning. I wouldn't have to think about my feet, for example. I wouldn't have to think about how much I need to bend over to get a good line of sight on the monitor. But that would be making the challenge easy. And that is not what this is about. And it would probably make it less fun to watch. I think so as well, because I think part of the appeal of this is that when he is at screen one, he cannot see screen three. Actually, nevertheless, he can't see screen two either. So it's a case of playing through this game and fixing this. It's essentially a game of putting out fires. That is all he is doing here. And he is never clearing any boards. He is essentially just surviving for as long as possible. This challenge doesn't have a time limit on it. It lasts about three minutes in total. And it is gripping for all of those three minutes because it will just go through, put out one fire on, the, on screen one, then run across screen two and put out the fires on screen two, then run across to screen three, put out the fires there, go back to screen one. All the while, Dom is keeping his eyes on the two screens that he isn't looking at and is telling him screen two is in trouble. Screen three, you really want to go and have a look at. The amount of times I wrote in my notes, man, screen three is an absolute state right now. 
and he'll just go through and he'll clear that off. Well, you know, it's screen three's estate again. It is a really, really awesome challenge. I took so many notes, but you're right. Like it's almost pointless us going through it blow by blow and ball by ball because it is such a visual thing. And the tension is there. And yeah, I love that Dom is doing the whole, no, go to screen two, go to screen three. And it is therefore kind of ironic that the screen that serves as his comeuppance is actually the one he probably spent the most time focused on. How did that happen? I just think, for want of a better phrase, some bad balls. He did get bad. The colours worked against him on all three machines, in fact. Like you just, he goes across the screen two at one point and the colours work against him. You're like, oh, that's that's a bit of bad luck. He then goes across the screen three and the colours work against him. He goes back to screen one and the colours work against him. He does have a few errant shots where he misses the target that he's aiming for. Like he is trying to clear some yellows and he gets the ball just slightly to the left of them. There's also a moment when he clearly panics and he's got two blues on the left-hand side and two reds on the right-hand side. And his thought is, I need to clear those blues. And he gets given a red, so he just fires the red at the blues as opposed to just moving it across to the side and firing at those two reds on the right-hand side and clearing those. And I don't begrudge him for that at all, because I think in that situation, with all the lights on you and everything, you probably would just panic ever so slightly and just do gut instinct first thing, as opposed to scanning the field to see what you want to clear. If he was just playing one round of this game, I'd be like, well, that's a bit of a numpty move. Exactly. three simultaneous, no, absolutely not. I am gutted he didn't win because I was really rooting for this guy. Dom was really rooting for this guy. I think, you know, I don't think there was anyone on set who probably wasn't rooting for this guy to win, apart from the person in charge of procuring golden joysticks who's just like, mate, these are getting expensive. Yeah, it's a real shame that he doesn't do it. And it is his own comeuppance in the end because he goes across to screen one. Like he clears some of that moves across to screen two, and then Dom yells at him to go to screen three and clear that. And by the time he gets back to screen one, it's in proper dire straits. And he just shoots a ball terribly. Like he shoots it almost knowing that it's going to kill him. And he shoots it and it goes over the line. And that's it. It it was really bad luck. I wonder what he was going for was to try and bounce it underneath, like bounce it off the wall to mm. sort of like angle it but what he does he just shot it and it just attached itself to the column that was there and, and that was it oh man it was such a good challenge and when we get to the end of it both of them are absolutely wrecked Poor Dom is Dom. panting Tom's <laughs> like, like how did you find that challenge but yeah they are bathed in sweat and yeah Damon's just like oh I lost time on screen one just started to build up <sighs> Okay, <laughs> I was going to get my breath back for a second there, Damon. You lasted fantastically long there. There was a couple of times it was getting very, very dodgy. Talk us through some of the moist moments for you. Yeah, I know I lost, lost a bit of time on screen one as the balls were adding up, and that made it more difficult for me to get rid of the balls. So I was just concentrating on two and three when I should have been crossing in one. That was, that was where um, you went wrong, you reckon? Yeah. Are you as bathed in sweat as I am? Definitely, yeah. It's a tough challenge. Yeah. And that was it. I mean, there isn't much to say. We saw what happened. We could see the, the, the way the hands were being dealt to him. It sucked that he lost, but definitely one of my favourite kind of like weird challenges we've had in a while. Yeah, I really enjoyed Dom asking him about his moist moments, which I think was a rejected tagline for the Quality Street uh, commercials that ran during the 90s. But yeah, like I, I'm, I'm gutted for him, but it was such a fun challenge. I think like that with Virtua Cop that we had a few episodes ago will probably rank quite highly in my favourite ones of the series. Yeah, it's a tough it's a tough call for me, but I think this one may be just ahead of the Virtua Cop one. Keep your rhythm. Fair enough, mate. 
First up, the best boxing game since my last fight, Victory Boxing on the Saturn. Boxing games traditionally are pretty neck, but Victory Boxing on the Saturn, however, is the Virtua Fighter of boxing games. It's boxing crossed with a beat-em-up. You can customise your pugilist in height, in weight, in the way he fights. There are five different styles of fighting, and as you progress through the championships, so your trainer teaches you new special moves. It's great, okay, you can get different camera angles, and you can see the fighter's full length, which is also a bonus. But the action in this one is just a little bit slow and clumsy, and it lacks realism for me. I disagree with Dave, actually. I think that sometimes fighting games are a little too fast. With the strategy element, you can actually think about the moves that you're going to take. I actually really like Victory Boxing. It is the thinking man's fighting game. Right, I am just going to put this out on Front Street now. What is your problem, Dave Perry? Because just a few episodes ago, your biggest problem with Destruction Derby is that it wasn't re it was too realistic and that it didn't have any weapons in it we get to victory boxing what's his problem with it it lacks realism make up your mind dave what do you want from a game mate you're going to explode by the time we get to the third review i know <laughs> all caps lock i don't make up your fucking mind here dave but yeah this is victory boxing on the sega saturn i wish i had more to say about this because it actually looks like a lot of fun and the most i can say about it is it's called king of boxes in japan center ring boxing in the us and here in the UK and Europe and elsewhere in the world, Victory Boxing. It's from the JVC Victor Company type people. And there isn't actually that much more about it. There was like a review in Saturn magazine. Digitizer reviewed it, gave it 85%. Um, It looks fun. Yeah. It actually looks... I, I mean, they keep comparing it to Virtua Fighter. I think this looks better than Virtua Fighter by, by a fair degree. And yeah... Uh, Rick says that, you know, boxing games normally pretty naff, but this is the Virtua Fighter, a boxing game. It's got more beat-em-up elements, which I would argue is kind of boxing anyway. I mean, literally, the goal of boxing is to beat your opponent up. But I get what he means. I'm, yeah. just, being a ped I'm just being pedantic. Not as much as Dave, but I am being pedantic. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Rick in this one where he said that most boxing games have been naff. Like, we've seen boxing games on this show that have been absolute toilets and just button-mashing nonsense. And I think here kind of comparing it to Virtual Fighter and giving it that more strategic feel to it might actually make it a much better game. And maybe that's just the way to do boxing games because the only boxing game I've ever really liked is Punch-Out. And Punch-Out isn't a boxing game, it's an arcade game that's just yeah. got a bit like, that's got like memory, you know, and like learning patterns and stuff. So I think I would be more on board for this than I would any of the other boxing games we have had on Games Master up until this point. I mean, also big up for something that Dave does bring up and praise is the ability to customise and train your boxer and learn new moves and tactics as you go along. That's pretty cool. That's early career mode type stuff. It is, yeah. We've also got uh, bandanalist Dave Perry once again with his bleach blonde hair. Hmm. I wonder if someone will make fun of people with bleach blonde hair later on in this episode. It's an absolute mystery for the ages. I couldn't possibly comment on that, Luke. But... This is where he comes in saying, oh, you know, it's a little slow and clumsy. It lacks realism. And Rick is like, nah, sod that. Fighting games, they can move too fast. You get a strategy element here. It's a thinking man's fighting game. Rock on, Rick. Take that, Dave Perry. 90% there for victory boxing on the Saturn. Also, quality review for the Sega Saturn. Nice to see. Next up, the best first-person perspective shoot him, beat him up since my last fight. Hexen, Heretic 2 on the PC. Whereas Doom was just running around shooting things, 
Hexen, however, is actually far more complex than that. You have three characters to choose from at the beginning, all with their own individual abilities and weapons. The areas you're in are far more interactive. You can do things like shooting out stained glass windows, and the effects of some of the weapons and spells can only be described as truly evil. The mage has these glowing blue hands that fire huge shards of freezing power at your enemies. There's also the option to play in a cooperative mode as well as in the old Doom Deathmatch. This is a truly huge and awesome game. This, like, is super hot off the presses. This literally only comes out in end of October 1995. And what, here we are, three days later at the beginning of November. Yeah, they must have had, like, a, a pre-review copy of it because they've got some really good footage of it and it looks awesome as well. You know, obviously the first thing you're going to compare it to is Doom, but it's kind of in the same way that we had with the Star Wars game. It's so much bigger than just being a Doom clone. It, it does use a heavily, heavily modified version of the Doom engine, but it just builds on it. I mean, it gives different character classes. It also kind of helped bring about what you consider the hub system of levels, where you don't just go linear, but you actually kind of start from a place and move off and choose different level areas and go on to it. And unlike the previous games, this also has a soundtrack CD. So we don't have the general MIDI stuff. Don't get me wrong, it sounds great, particularly through a Roland sound canvas if you're a posh kid. But this just goes, now, nah, mate, CD, that's the way of the future. Massive score for it as well, 96%. And I think a lot of that is down to the fact you can play it co-op as well as the deathmatch style. A lot of variety to it, and that's a huge, huge score there. Although Dave mainly seems to be kind of interested in the fact you can smash windows. Well, it's because he's a big old thug, isn't he? And finally, the best baseball game since my last fight. Wild Series Baseball on the Saturn. It's off the wall. No Actual teams, actual stadiums, actual players. And actually, this isn't bad. World Series Baseball on the Saturn is one of the most realistic baseball games I've ever played. On the field of play, every single player has their own individual attributes and statistics. And when you tonk that ball for a home run, there's nothing more satisfying, even winning the lottery. If anybody has sat through a real baseball game, they'll know how long it lasts. It goes on for hours and there's hardly any score. And that could be the problem with World Series Baseball. It's a little bit too realistic. Perhaps they should have put a little bit more fantasy in there, a little bit more action, just to keep the unappreciative British audiences interested. That last gag really paid off as we got into the night of there. Because even Dom is just like, well, since my last fight. I, I loved it. It popped me. Absolutely yeah. popped me. Also because I've just been listening to a podcast about and re-watching The Warriors, and so my brain went, oh, Dom was a baseball fury. See, what popped me is Rick talking about tonking the ball, that he loves tonking things. Tonk it for a homer. Apparently, there's nothing better, not even winning the lottery. I would like to put that to the test, Luke. If someone could help me win the lottery, I will let them know if it's more or less satisfying than tonking a homer. Now... I don't say this very often on this podcast, but I agree with Dave Perry here. Baseball's too fucking long. It's too fucking long and not enough happens. And the fact that World Series Baseball is very realistic means that games will probably last you a while. Probably grand if you like baseball, but man alive, like I have always struggled to watch baseball. But again, it's the contradictory nature of Dave, the games animal Perry, of going, Ugh. Not realistic enough, Ugh, too realistic, Ugh, not realistic enough. What it needs is robot arms and rocket launchers. He's looking for that third bowl of porridge, is our Dave. <laughs> Always looking for that, that perfect bowl of porridge. He is the Goldilocks of the Games Master of Review team. Certainly with that hairstyle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but outside of Dave's need for kind of carnage, this game was 
massively popular. Um, it won the 95 Games Players Award for Best Sports Game. Next Gen listed it in number 48 of their top 100 games of all time, commenting that this is the best looking and best playing baseball video game of all time. In Japan, it got released to great fanfare and was actually sponsored by Japanese player Hideo Nomo. And it even got a sequel in 1996, World Series Baseball 2. Although, somewhat confusingly, there was also a Mega Drive and Game Gear game of the same name, completely unrelated. But I'm not a fan of baseball, really. Um, the most use I get out of baseball is as part of my Casey Jones costume back there, or playing as Majima in the Yakuza series, or watching the Warriors. But I did think this game, particularly for its time, looked pretty damn spanky. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, like I've mentioned this before on the podcast. My only enjoyment I get out of baseball is baseball-based movies, which I do actually quite enjoy. So if instead of building kind of a baseball pitch in a field of corn, Costner had just sat down and played this game, would you have still found it entertaining? That depends on if they build it and they still come. So what, like if he maybe got some nachos, put it on the big screen rear projection TV, got some beers in, and then people just turned up to all sit around and play baseball on a Saturn? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and a, a massive Patrick Moore appears in the sky, and it basically just becomes Games Master. So what I'm after is them to do Games Master. Basically, you want Kevin Costner hosting an American remake of Games Master. If anyone could have done it, it would have been Costner. Uh, anyway, seventy percent there for World Series Baseball. Oh, I'm a bit cream crackered. We're just working out here, not for gratuitous visual thrills. We're just so excited about the second round of the Games Master Football Tournament coming up after the break. this life, you got to take what you want. I was wondering if I could ask you just a teensy, little favor. Lucky you wasn't a bank robber. I always get what I want, Harry. Bad boy. I was at the fire. Oh, that little gal got you all stoked up, doesn't she? Now there's a hot pastime. Dark and deadly. The hot spot, Sunday at 10 on 4. Chris Farley, David Spade, they're on the road to success. Ah! One bump after another. Oh, Tommy Boy. That's going to leave a mark. It's 11.30. It's 11.30. It's 11.30. Diet Coke break. Diet Coke break. I don't want you to be no slave. I don't want you to work all day. But I want you to be true. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We are right for each other. We are good for each other, my darling. We are, we are. Sleep well, my love. Good night, dearest. Now, come on, hang on. Hang on. Oh. <laughs> Good night. Good night, dearest. Beautiful. We can't all be Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. But a little bit of pillow talk makes stars of us all. So if you're not together tonight, get together. On the phone. Hello, love. <laughs> it's good to talk. Yeah, kids have been in bed for hours. Love is in the air in Channel 4's tempting new series, Love in the Afternoon. Our irresistible recipe includes a dollop of devotion in love styles of the rich and famous. So prepare to go weak at the knees with Antoine de Combe, Maria McElaine and me, Caroline Marshall, for Love in the Afternoon. Mondays at 5 on Channel 4. Master Stadium. We're quite literally three minutes thirty seconds away from kickoff. And if you wish to be pedantic, you can start your stopwatches now to see if I'm lying. Do you reckon there really were people who watched this episode and pulled out a little stop clock, being like, "I wonder if there is actually going to be three minutes and thirty seconds away from the kickoff." You know, when he said it, I made a note of the time. And I completely forgot to keep a watch on it. Did you? No, I, I did the exact same thing, Ash. I was like, I need to go back and time this out uh, while I was making. But, I, you know, I don't want to do it while I'm taking my first round of notes because I'm, I'm constantly pausing and stuff. And that, that would just create too much work. And then I forgot to do it on a second watch. Hang on a second. Yeah, well, we could do this Let's, in real time. We could do this in, well, we can find it and then we can just skip forward to where it ends. You know, we, we can cheat. Okay, 12.39, call it 12.40. We'll give him mm. leeway on a couple of yeah, seconds. Yeah. But yeah, 12.39, 12.40, and 14.53 is kickoff. Okay, so is that right? I'm, I'm really bad at working out timings on that sort of situation. It's 
two minutes. It's two minutes and ten seconds ish. Yes, two okay. minutes. Two minutes and ten seconds ish. But I tell you what, it is. It's two minutes and thirty. Because he said two minutes and thirty seconds, or three minutes three and thirty minutes seconds. Oh no, he's just yeah, he's blowing it out his butt then. Because <laughs> I was going to say it's two minutes thirty from when we came back from commercial. Right. Okay. So if he'd said two minutes thirty, he'd be bang on the button. But there you go. Oh, so, so I wondered if they have had people like you know sending in these sorts of things. I only bring that up because I remember Dave Meltzer on Wrestling Observer Radio telling a story that back in the day of wrestling, they would sometimes do, you know, like 60 minute time limit draws or things like this to sort of get around people winning and losing. And they never actually really timed it or anything like that. They would just sort of like get towards the sort of 60 minute mark and then away they go, you know, go to the finish, thinking that there aren't people that are actually keeping track of the time until there was a show, uh, I can't remember which, it would have been like probably like Mid-South or something, and someone in the audience came up to the timekeeper or went to someone in production and said, I think your timekeeper's wrong because that match was only 58 minutes. And that was when they were like, uh-oh, we need to actually start timing these out properly because people are now starting to take stopwatches to these shows and are making notes of this. Well, uh, I mean, you know, as you brought up wrestling, do you know, look, at some point, we are just going to have to do a wrestling podcast or a wrestling episode because it's in my life. It's in your life. Well, I know, but I do a wrestling podcast as my day job. I don't want to do that as my like extracurricular activity as well. We'll find a way to make it work. We'll find a way. But um, uh, the main company I work for, Pro Wrestling Eve, uh, we have uh, time limits and we actually have a clock on the screen from bell to bell. It's shoot. It's absolutely 100%. There is no gimmick to that clock at all. I made the clock timer. It's a video. I've got different length loops and the color changes as it goes. So starts green, goes orange. And then when you're down to the last three minutes, it's flashing red, you know, and and it's great to have because it also means the wrestlers can and the referee can keep an eye on the time because, you know, being an indie, you don't necessarily always have the in-ear comms. Sometimes we have them, sometimes we don't. But when we did rumbles, I had someone come up to me afterwards going... I was keeping an eye on the time because, you know, 90 seconds, someone comes in every time. Yeah. And I was like, I was keeping an eye on the time. And I'm like, yeah. And they were like, you were actually correct. And I'm like, I know. I know. <laughs> this ain't the WWE. I'm not gimmicking. I'm not making 90 seconds, sometimes 45, sometimes 60. I did say there is a bit of variance because I don't reset the clock until they are fully inside the ring. Mm-hmm. So it's not 90 seconds from the start of entrance, because also some wrestlers, it takes them 90 seconds to get to the ring. It's from when they enter the ring and start fighting. But this person was actually almost proper indignant. It's like, I thought I was going to catch you out, and I didn't. And I'm like, nah, mate. That's because WWE always, like, they vary it depending on when the next spot is for entrance and stuff. They do the same thing with the chamber and things like that and the other. But anyway, that's like, that, that's wrestling stuff that we could talk about on cut a different out, show. Cut that we'll, <laughs> oh, no, we're saying in the edit. But we'll talk about it on a different <laughs> podcast that we do. Oh, dear. Anyway, let's head on over to Games Master to find out about this week's Celebrity Challenge, which is the same as last week's Celebrity Challenge. The second round of our football championship will again be played on winning 11. And our players will have two halves to prove which of them is the master of the PlayStation pitch. Right, lads, let's give it 101%. Oh, Games Master's at it again with his whole giving it over 100%. Come on, Games Master, don't make me play the Simpsons clip. That's impossible. No No one one can give more than 100%. By definition, that is the most anyone can give. Well, there was the Simpsons clip. But, I mean... (laughs) You can go over 100%. 
Just can scientifically, you? you can. Okay, so scientifically, can you go over 100%? Because honestly, I've just gone by what Simpsons told me, that it's impossible. And I've just run with that as the letter of the law. Yeah, because you can say that um, something is 150% of expectations. So if you're expecting if you're expecting 100 people to attend and you get 150... Aha, uh-huh, that would be 50% more than you were expecting. Sorry, let me do that again. If you're expecting 100 and you got a factor more than 100%, you got 150. You got Okay, so if you're expecting 100, if you, 100 and 250 showed up, then it is 150% more. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. You can go over 100%. The Simpsons, Luke, I'm afraid to say, <laughs> is wrong. Well, I never thought in my lifetime I would find out that The Simpsons got something wrong. We're going to get notes on it. We've already had notes about double albums. Uh, Even though I'm (laughs) fairly certain I did discount, like, prog rock and concept albums that have a story. You did. But also, speaking of people getting in touch and telling about things we got wrong, Raiden's not in Mortal Kombat 3. That's why Christopher Lambert didn't play as him. He's in Ultimate Mortal Kombat 3. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Right. I mean, anyway. you could tell this is the challenge we've had before is winning 11 again. <laughs> um, Dom does actually talk about, you know, bringing up faults, bringing up things that are wrong. Dom is like, ah, the last match was kind of shit. Well, it was, wasn't it? It was really bad. It was, yeah, it was proper hacky season one type game playing. And it's always the danger with celebrities at that time because, you know, gaming wasn't the pastime it is now. Thankfully, it's so much better this week. This week, we have a clash of the defensive titans for the second semi-final. Please welcome Graham Lesseau and Phil Babb. Welcome to the show, Graham. Thank you. Welcome, Phil. Okay, right, Graham. there has been a lot of atrocious haircuts in the Premiership so far this season. What's been your particular worst? Uh, the bleached ones. You know, like, like sort of Robbie Fowler's gases and that? No names, but... No, you haven't been tempted yourself to go for a lighter uh, look? No, I just leave my hair do its own thing. Not even run a comb through it? No. Either. <laughs> no actually, I, don't, I don't want to have to run a comb through it, it has to be said. Uh, right, Phil, now, actually, we actually bumped into each other, right, a while back, and you did say to me you were the greatest video games player currently playing football. Are you still sticking by that? Um, I'll, I'll have a good bash at it. Because you did, you said, get me on the show, I am fantastic. Oh. Well, so you have to be good You have to be good. Do you reckon you can take Graham then? Eh, I'd like to think so. And what style of play will we be having from you? Dynamic. <laughs> <laughs> Phil Bab and Graham Lasso are the next contenders, which means we've had four brand new contenders for this tournament. We've got no returning champions, no previous players. These are four brand new newbies to the game. Fresh blood and... Dom is straight on to the important topic of the day, and in fact most days when it comes to Mr Diamond... Haircuts. Haircuts in the Premier League, Luke. Yeah, in particular. I mean, in fairness, it is Graham that brings up bleach blonde haircuts like, uh, you know, Gazza and Robbie Fowler and stuff. But I could almost hear Dominic Diamond being like, oh, and also Dave Perry. <laughs> yeah, Dave's going, Dave stood there tightening his bandana going, man, I wish I... maybe that's why they nicked the bandana in the review section. It's just like we had footballers negging on bleach blonde haircuts. And Graham the was on the TV making fun of Bleach Blonde Haircuts. Make sure Dave Perry's on screen with his sh- hair. <laughs> his hair is perfectly fine. It's perfect, yeah. For the, for the time. It was the style at the time. At the time, it was. Speaking of Simpsons clips. Which was the style at the time. Yeah, so we start with Graham. Uh, Graham Lasso. Graham Pierre. 
Lasso, former professional football player at this point, but now television pundit. He spent most of his career as a left back. He had two spells at Chelsea, Blackburn Rovers, he's Southampton, and played for the England national football team. He was playing up until 2005 when he announced his retirement at the same time as Southampton were being relegated from the Premier League. He's always been a nice chap as Graham Lasso. I do like him as a pundit as well, but he's always just seemed like a really nice guy. Yeah, he, I'm, I mean, I'm sure someone will go, no, I, you know, he pushed in front of me to get some chips or something. But no, he always seemed like a nice guy. He had a relatively kind of like storied career, scored 20-odd goals from 403 club appearances. Not bad given the position. He was twice named in the Professional Footballers Association Team of the Year, 95 with Blackburn, 98 with Chelsea. As an England international, made 36 appearances from 94 to 2000, including starting all four England games at the 98 World Cup in France. Scored against Brazil too. That's not shabby. (laughs) That's not shabby at all. We've also got Phil Babb here this week. And they have a conversation, Dom and Phil, about bumping into each other and Phil talking about how good of a gamer he is. And I couldn't tell whether or not Phil Babb did not record this conversation or whether he was just trying to play, you know, coin being like, oh, you know, I'm okay, I guess. But there was almost this part of him that was like, I don't remember this conversation whatsoever. I bet you booze was involved. It was at a club or a pub or some kind of party or function. Some press events. And Phil was like, hey, it's that Games Master bloke, Games Master, I play the video games. Uh, Or someone, he was introduced to Dom as, he does a show about video games. Or Dom is actually telling a little bit of a fib and that information was said to a researcher. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That Because Phil genuinely, you know, that always trying to be a ringer, but Phil is just stood there going, did I say that? I don't remember that. Yeah, he has just got this bemused look on his face of being like, this is the first time we've ever met. Phil spent six seasons with Liverpool, also played in the top flight for Coventry City and Sunderland, played in Portugal for Sporting CP and the Football League for Bradford City and Tranmere Rovers and represented the Republic of Ireland at World Cup 94. Was that the World Cup we didn't make it into? Um, yes, question mark? England World Cup 94. Yes, we did not make it. Because I thought so. Because, yeah, because that was the World Cup we didn't make it into, and therefore suddenly everyone in England was like, well, I guess we're supporting Ireland then. And Ireland were like, oh, really? Now you suddenly pay attention to us just because you literally couldn't score a goal to save your life. Yeah, we were in group two uh, and were bested by the Netherlands and Norway who did qualify. Although we did rank higher than Poland's Turkey and San Marino. Well, there you go. There's there's something that I'm sure kept the coach and the team warm at night. It's all right. Euro 96 is just around the corners and football's coming home. Oh my God. How many weeks of that are we going to get? Not only that, we get it twice because it... It's in the charts at number one. It then gets bested by the Fugees, and then it bests the Fugees to go back to number one, who then get bested by the Fugees again. We miss 98, though, don't we? We do miss 90. We miss World Cup 98, yeah. But we, and I actually think that all the, the Euro 96 stuff is in our mid season break. We're still going to have to discuss it just because it dominated. But it did, anyway, indeed. wow, we are tangenting off and we're working to a deadline today. <laughs> but anyway, Bab, since retiring, has mainly worked as a pundit for Sky Sports. 
and that's that's where he's at now. And Games Master briefly appears to shout, "Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough." Well, I guess that was they had the footage, and they were like, "Well, we can't not use this footage of Patrick Moore saying, "Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough." So we'll just pop it in here. It's like the footage that was used in the Gore special of him laughing and having having bants and stuff like that. You know, which I wish there was more of, as I think I said at the time. PC reviews. Ball boy Rick Henderson is joining me again for the second semi-final. Rick, who are you going to go for? Oh, as a lifelong Reds fan, Liverpool that is, not the Scummers, uh, it's got to be Phil. Uh, Phil's got to win this one as far as I'm concerned. But if Graham indeed attacks it the same way as he attacks his left, left back slot for England with the same tenacity, it would be an interesting contest, I think. Thank you very much, Rick. That was almost eloquent as well. It was. We've got Rick Henderson in the booth and as a lifelong Liverpool fan, he is very much pulling for Phil Babb here and he has backed the right horse. Yep, and team-wise, Phil is in the orange and playing as Spulse. Because I wasn't sure if it was Spulse or Spluce, but yeah, I suppose it would be Spulse. But I like Graham's team of Jubilo. Jubilo, those are those clown guys. Aren't they down with the clowns, the Jubbalos? <laughs> yeah, the Jub- yeah, yeah, yeah. They got a whole like festival for them and everything with their Fago and that. I wasn't sure if it was Jubilo. <laughs> We're gonna get or- letters. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure if it was Jubilo or Jubilo, but I'm going with Jubilo because it is funny. It's no Jeff United, but I do like Jubilo nonetheless. I I still want a Jeff United football shirt, <laughs> but oh, we get to kick off in as we discussed like two minutes and. 30 seconds or two minutes and 20 seconds or something but either way not the three minute and 30 as advertised and this is night and day to last week's game actually kind of for both players because phil is much more nimble right off the bat and graham is just vicious he is going high boots on a lot of these tackles and i'm amazed we do not get more cards or more stoppages because He's going studs out straight for the shins. Because Gamesmaster said in last week's episode, watch out for the tackles because it will almost always result in a foul. And yet here is Lasso just throwing them out willy-nilly. Either they are perfectly timed every single time or they've changed the setting somewhere and have made the referee blind. Yeah, I'm thinking it's the latter because it just means that they can just go, right, just go hellbent for leather, lads. Just whack them out of each other because last week's was kind of boring. This week's isn't boring and they must have disabled the referee's kind of ability to see because there is literal murder going on on this pitch because both in both in goal and out of oh my god but like phil takes the first goal before rick and dom have even really got warmed up on commentary they're still just doing their opening banter and suddenly hooray Okay, Phil Babb is playing in the orange. The team is called Spulse, playing from left to right. And Graham Lasso is playing in the blue. From right to left, his team is called Jubilo. If you remember last week, we saw a very random game there. Oh, there's a goal, Phil! straight away! And Rick and Dom are super happy and probably super relieved. Yeah, particularly when it then goes 2-0 to the Babster. Uh, very shortly thereafter. There's only been about 15 seconds worth of actual in-ring gameplay. And then Phil starts, Phil tonks it up the field and we get, you know, early, mid-90s 3D keeper AI who just stands there and watches the ball slowly approach them. The keeper does not move and it just bounces and just slowly rolls towards. Nowadays, that keeper would have been out and it would have picked it up much earlier. But the, you can hear Rick and Dominic on commentary being like, uh, 
is the keeper going to attempt to get the ball? Maybe, maybe. I mean, that's why he's here. Is he actually just channeling England in 1994 World Cup qualifications? But I do love Rick saying, eat my goal. That oh, popped I love me that. huge. Yeah, that's, that's proper great. 90s football, football chat. We actually might get to talk about that when we get to Euro 96 as well, because that was the other big song at the time. No one ever talks about Eat My Goal as much, um, for obvious reasons. Bab's third goal, however, is an absolute beauty. He skips over not one, not two, not four, but three of Graham's defenders and scores an absolute screamer into the back of the net. It's beautiful. This game is playing out like a Roy of the Rovers comic strip, where it's like, I may have other players, but I just need Roy. Uh, Graham does get a shot in before halftime, but it goes right to the keeper. And his problem that he has, and he has this in the second half as well, is he will event- he will every now and again get a shot in, but it's either from too far away or he's not using the aftertouch functionality. So it just goes straight into the keeper's hands. Yeah, I, it's difficult to say whether Phil is just a naturally better games player. Or maybe, maybe he's actually already a PlayStation owner. Maybe he maybe he is a big gamer and he's actually got the PlayStation on import and he bought Winning Eleven because he definitely seems to have a familiarity with the control and not only the control of the game, but the speed and the pace of the game. Because that's the thing is you can read and you can look at all the controls in the world for a game, but once you're actually trying to work around the physics and the timing, it, it throws it off. It's why actually like some game series, I'm not going to mention them because we've talked about that part of our lives enough, but some game series will have the same controls for many, many releases, but they will change the timings and the dynamics. So even though you go into the latest entry knowing what the controls are, because the timing windows have changed, it all throws it out of a window. Yeah, there's also every chance that he just played it a lot in the green room. You know, he just got in there. He's a football player and stuff. Maybe he's all four of them would have been there at the same time. And like, maybe it's just him and Dean Holdsworth have just been having a few games on it and he's just got the hang of it quite quickly. I mean, you say natural, natural game playing talent yeah. in that case, because he's like, he's really good and it makes for a really, really entertaining match. There's also every chance that, because they keep talking about the aftertouch functionality. If he's played it once and Rick Henderson has said to him, if you press this button, aftertouch usually gets it in. He's like, cool. And he's always there to press that button, probably because he's a bit more used to this sort of thing because he's just so much better at this than, than Graham is. To the point when he scores his fourth goal, Graham so brilliantly starts checking the wiring on his control pad to see if it's actually plugged in. Oh, blaming the controller. Ooh, that does not go down well on Games Master. Uh, Bab nearly scores again during injury time. I, I'd written it off at 4-0 and then it, it came up with injury time and I'm like, yeah, it's okay. It's a 4-0 result. And then, yeah, Bab nearly scores again to make it five, but it's all she wrote. It's 4-0 to Phil Bab and Spulse. But it was a far more entertaining game than we got last week. It was very one-sided. If I had a complaint, it would have been fun to see it be more kind of back and forth. But after the dirgy match last week, just seeing four goals in the back of the net... That was class. That was great. That really lifted me up. Phil, we'll start with you. What can I say? Absolutely magnificent. What was the secret of your success? A uh, bit of coaching from Robbie Fowler and Stan Collymore this morning yep. and uh, put my shooting boots on and it seemed to work. But it didn't, <coughs> they didn't uh, kind of influence you to change your hair at all? No. no you're not no. going to follow suit with them? No, no. No, that's probably a good thing. Graham, when was the last time you suffered a 4-0 defeat? It's been ages um, and ages. Yeah, ago. it's been, been a little while. So what went wrong? I think someone was fiddling with my joystick. 
I'm sure we'll have enough about that. Uh, <laughs> we don't want to get the tabloids involved in anything like We don't want to bring the game into disrepute. And we certainly don't want to be on right to reply again because we're a little bit bored of that having to happen to us. Thanks so much for coming along anyway, Graham. It's a pity you couldn't make it to the final, but there is a place in my Sunday league team this Sunday, if you are free. See what I can do. Uh, well, we'll have to test you out first, obviously. Oh, you can't just walk straight On that in. performance, I think I'm going to struggle. <laughs> <laughs> now, Graham Lasseau has got, I believe, might be the first instance of an accidental diamondism. Because he says, someone's fiddling with my joystick. Here's what he said as he said it out loud. And all three of them just start giggling and be like, whoops, I come that, came out, that came out harder than I was expecting it to. Yeah, but he does actually add misses at the end. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's like, just catches himself and be like, oh, misses. I don't think it was accidental. I think it was very deliberate on his part. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if it was on purpose. But Dom deflects it away and says that they don't want to get the tabloids involved and certainly don't want to end up on right to reply again. Yeah, I was going to say, they're bored of being on right to reply. The Waterworld Show, which opened last week in Universal Studios, California, is the most complex live action show ever, with tourists quite literally watching it by the busload. Right, today I am at the biggest, newest attraction in the world of amusements. This is the Waterworld attraction at Universal Studios in California. And uh, don't tell my mum though, because she thinks I've just nipped out for a pint of milk. As always, thousands of hangers-on followed my every move, so I hid inside this green box until the show began. The future. The polar ice caps have melted. And the continents are deep beneath the waves in this place called Waterworld. Did you ever go to the Waterworld show? Now, I was thinking about this because I first went to Universal Studios, I want to say 2002. I think it was 2002 or 2001. It was around that time. And I know I went to Back to the Future and I know I went on the Terminator kind of experience. And I think there was a haunted house kind of like experience as well. But I didn't go to Waterworld. And I went back there again after Back to the Future had gone and after Terminator 2 had gone. And I went on a bunch of rides, including some of the Simpsons stuff and uh, the Transformers one, which, despite being based on Bayformers, really fun, immersive experience. And I don't think I went on Waterworld. And then, uh, before we were recording today, and I actually messaged you with this, I watched on YouTube a complete run-through of the show from, like, 2015. So... It launched in 1995 and then was actually revitalized a couple of times along the way. Also launched in Universal Studios Japan in 2001, Singapore in 2010 and Beijing in 2021. And I really regret not going to see it. And I hope maybe I get a chance to at some point in the future because I'm watching this like kind of audience recording of the show from 2015 and it's cheesy and in fact i think looking at it compared to some of the footage we see here cartoonified a bit it's been toned down a bit it's been made a little bit less serious and a little bit more campy but bloody hell luke it looks like a lot of fun i'm surprised because i could have sworn blind i went to go and see this could have sworn to you that i did when i went to universal studios in 1998 but I can't have done, because it wasn't at the Florida one, it was only at the California one. And so if it wasn't there, then I definitely haven't seen this before, and I must be confusing it with Twister or something like that. But it must just be because I saw this show and like these sort of like, you know, uh, sort of press packs and things like that. 
so many times on TV shows like Games Master and Bad Influence and that sort of thing that I must have like almost thought to myself that I did go, but I clearly haven't seen it. No, but I, I mean, I do recommend if you haven't been to Universal Studios and you haven't like somehow somehow you missed all of the hype around this because there was a lot of hype universal studios were really really pushing this as their reason to go to universal studios hollywood because by god they needed to make money out of the Waterworld name somehow i recommend go and check out some videos of it on on youtube just because even though it's not quite as good as being there you're not in the splash zone for one the spectacle of what they're doing with a live show a live show involving water and fire and stunts and, minor spoilers, a giant bloody plane being catapulted through the air towards the audience. It's mad impressive, even now, and it says a lot where they have revitalised it. It's still, in essence, the same show it was in 1995, so 27 years later, and it holds up remarkably well. And, yeah, I, I watched the video of this earlier, and I just had this big dopey grin on my face by the end, because I'm like... That was a lot of fun. The impressive thing there, as you mentioned, that uh, the popularity of this this spectacle and this show is that it opened in you know recent as recently as 2021. They were opening up a new version of this for an overseas market. That seems incredible to me because the Waterworld brand died the second the film came out, but yet this live show has become so popular that to this day, it is still one of the most attended things that they do to the point that they're putting it into overseas markets. I think it's so cool, which must, I'm so surprised it's not of the Florida one. I'm still like reeling at the fact that I have thought to myself over these years that I did see this live and I haven't. I must be confusing it with Twister because they do, the Twister one is definitely in Florida. Mm. And I definitely went to go and see that. It's nowhere, but I do, I do believe it's nowhere near as good as the Waterworld one. Yeah, I, I've, I think it's, I'm sure, actually, I think one time I was at Universal Studios, Waterworld was closed temporarily. It was either closed for some refurbishments or just because sometimes, you know what it's like, rides break, it happens. Uh, so that may be why I didn't go and see it the one time, but you were certainly aware of its presence because it's a big old space, a big old arena. And the thing that impresses me the most about it is that it's not just a case of, hey, remember Waterworld? Well, this is a lot shorter and you get soaked in it. It is a lot shorter. It's 16 minutes and Waterworld is um, girthy. You remember Waterworld? This one's actually made money. <laughs> it's still making money to this day. But it's an actual direct sequel-ish to Waterworld because it involves Helen returning from Dryland to get her friends from the Atoll and includes Helen, the Deacon, the Mariners in it as well, not played by Costner. He was busy working on the postman and also features more smokers other atollers and his stunts on water land uh like flying rig stunts some really quite big jumps and a fire burn as well amazing to think that there is a live action show that includes a live person burn sequence like five to ten times a day or however many shows that's what i was about to say like it's multiple times per day and it would have been like dozens upon dozens of times a day. Such a rotating cast. And most of the cast, they're all experienced stunt workers. And in fact, at the end of the video that I watched, uh, the Deacon returned from the dead to uh, basically introduce the cast, but also say you will have seen them performing on uh, Law and Order. This person would have been in NCIS. This person would have been in General Hospital. Basically going, look, these are real people that work within 
the film and TV industry. And this is also a paid gig. I mean, I don't know what the rates would be for doing a live action show, but if they're doing five a day, I'd have to imagine it's a pretty lucrative way to spend time between projects. I think it's Kane Hodder, but there's certainly been a lot of push for it over the last 20 years to get stunt work more recognised, particularly at the Academy Awards and things like that, because it's not like being a stunt person in a movie is a... I mean, maybe not so much these days because so much of it's done in CGI, but certainly back in the 90s and in the mid-2000s and, you know, in the 80s and that, like, stunt actors were doing so much work, so much legwork on these movies, and they never got the credit that they deserved. And looking at the stuff they do on this live show, in this 16-minute thing, it is incredible. And the skill that it takes to pull this off flawlessly is just... It's next level. Related to stunt work, because I'm only saying this because it's a book that I'm listening to at the moment, Blood, Sweat and Chrome, the story of Fury Road and how we got from it originally being pitched as a TV series and then the very long and storied production and the fact there was never actually technically a script, which I find amazing that it was basically all storyboarded. I've only seen the one excerpt from there about the the the, the, the feud between Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron. That's actually what led me to go and track down the audiobook of it. And I haven't got to that bit yet but what i have got to is them actually talking about all the stuntmen they had like a lot of the war boys they weren't actors they were stuntmen but they were actually going through um acting classes during pre-production because it's like look you're here because you can do this you can drive this car you can take this fall you can do all this but you need to understand why you're doing this you need to understand that you're not just doing this because you're being told to, you're doing this because of your character and your character's desire to please Immortan Joe, to retrieve his wives and stuff like that. And a lot of the stuntmen that they've interviewed for it are just like, we started doing these classes and I was thinking, what the bloody hell am I doing? Why am I doing this? This is stupid. And then two weeks later, I'm like, no, I absolutely get why I'm doing this. This is great. And it, it's really nice because as a book, it doesn't just focus on... Charlie's. It doesn't just focus on Hardy. It gives a lot of time to the stunt workers. And that's what I like about, about what they do with Waterworld at the end, is they do acknowledge that these are real working people from within the Hollywood system. And yes, more recognition by the Academy and whoever else gives them statues. It's the same like with Kane Hodder. The reason why he, you know, he is a stunt guy, but he's also everyone's favourite Jason Voorhees because he was the only one to have given Jason a bit of character. And he looked at Jason as more than just a stunt gig. It was like, no, I'm going to put some personality behind my foot. Like, I'm going to, I, I turn to the head, then the rest of the body moves. The hulking of the shoulders for the deep breathing and things like that. He gave Jason all of the traits that we now associate with him in the sort of the latter half of the, the movie series. I remember speaking with Paul Anderson in the, the, for a book. I wrote a book once and I asked him about... Take a shot. Yep. <laughs> and I asked him about Nemesis in uh, Resident Evil Apocalypse about whether he would have had the the character, the actor that played the guy who becomes Nemesis in Resident Evil 1, would you have brought him back to play, you know, put him in the Nemesis prosthetics and stuff to carry on that character? And Anderson's response was just like, well, no, because it's not a, it's just a stunt guy. Like, that's all you need to do. Like, it's, I, he is too important of an actor to put in prosthetics and do that. And I remember thinking like, well, I I agree with Kane here more than I do you. I think that we can put some more effort into this. So it's not just a walking hulk of prosthetics and it actually becomes a character with some depth to it. 
kind of in the same way you were talking there about Fury Rose. I mean, the difficulty comes with something like Nemesis, other than it looking really quite bad, is you it's trying to act through that level of prosthetics. Like, Jason, despite being behind a hockey mask, isn't too bad because you have the body form and the body language, whereas Nemesis was, like, not just a full-face prosthetic, but also, like, bulk up, lift shoes, like a muscle suit, I'm assuming, because no way did the stunt guy look like that. So you, it's like trying to kind of emote from inside a tank. In a way, I suppose, yeah. But I, I perhaps it would, might... Actually, I was about to say maybe it would have been a better movie, but I think it was always struggling to be a better movie anyway. It could have worked if they'd made Nemesis look different. If they'd actually yeah. given some freedom for movement other than stomp, stomp, shoot. And if they had tried to make it look different, there would have been blowback from the fans. They were already pretty much getting a lot of blowback from the fans already because it wasn't like the games. <sighs> Moving back to Waterworld... This show is a lot of fun, and um, yeah, we join Dom at the Waterworld feature. It's the biggest live stunt show in the world. I don't know if that record still stands, but it's certainly an impressive one. I, li- I think Dom's really good in here, and I like his interactions that he has with Norm uh, when they go to the, you know, the guy who's running the console desk and things like that with these wonderful, massive 90s consoles and computers and stuff. Right, I'm in the actual Waterworld control room with Norm, project manager. Uh, Norm, tell us a bit about some of the equipment that you're using for the ride. Well, what we have right here is our uh, main operator control console, and this is our main show computer that evaluates all of the safety systems and sensors that we use to run the show. We have a video surveillance system, and that allows us to see people underwater. Uh, that's our jet ski launcher. That's another underwater shot. Is it possible for anything to go wrong, then, with uh, with this? Well, with every show, you have the human element. You've yeah. got eight actors out there. You've got a stage crew of about 10 people. So more often than not, it's a, it's a factor of somebody not being on their button or an actor not being in the right spot, and the effect may not go. And uh, out of all of the things that, that go on, what's technically the most difficult thing to pull off? What's the thing you're proudest of? Well, the thing that's uh, technically most challenging in this show is launching our seaplane. It's a free-flying piece of metal that comes crashing through the wall and lands right in front of the audience. So that, is there any chance it could hit kind of bald Scottish blokes with glasses if they're sitting there? <laughs> is it totally safe? No, actually it's totally safe. <laughs> what will happen? The worst thing that will happen is it won't go. So you see the, uh, the cameras there so you can see it underwater and everything. That's right. You know how like in swimming pools they don't like it if you wee in the water? Yes, yes. Do you ever catch out any of the stunt guys? Well, no, we don't anything? catch them on camera, but we've talked about putting that dye in the water. Oh, the that turns stuff. red all the way around, but <laughs> we haven't gone that far yet. It is a beautiful little snapshot of technology history. It's flashing lights, buzzing consoles. It's way kind of cooler now where it would, for the most part, be touchscreen LCDs, which, you know, still look good in a Star Trek Next Generation Le Cars kind of way. But, you know, a good flashing button, that's what you want, really. You want, you want a nice light-up button that changes colour maybe when you push it. Uh, we also see their CCTV system, which is super important because the cameras are underwater as well as above the water. And it's because there's a whole bunch of points during the show where performers are killed and do like a big long fall or a dive into the water and never surface. And it's because essentially they go underwater and they have to go kind of under a wall and up the other side. But whilst that's going on, there were also jet skis and stuff moving around. And, you know, it is amazing that that show is as safe as it is. It's insane, isn't it? Like, it's not just lads falling off the top of things while on fire. There is so much going in on this. And as you mentioned, a bloody seaplane uh, sort of flying over for like, the, you know, the huge spectacular sequence at the end of the show. 
And, you know, Norman talking about, you know, it's the toughest part of this to, to get right. And it's amazing, like, you know, mistakes do happen. It's always down to human error. But I can't even imagine just, like, how wrong this show could go just with human error alone. Yeah, it, it's, it must be a case of um, practice, 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 drill, drill, drill. There are some things you can cover for, pyros not firing or, like, kind of water squibs or whatever you want to call the little kind of, like, things which make it look like the water's being shot with bullets because it's actually a little undersea kind of pump air jet things. But, yeah, the, the fact that, you know, no one really misses their cue. No one seems to fail to fall. Um, the one that I watched the video of, when the guy does the burn at the end, something looks like it almost went wrong or it's deliberate. It's because, spoilers for a show that's been around for like 27 years, he goes along a gantry and does probably the biggest fall of the event into the water, which ignites the water, but also obviously puts him out and then he's able to swim. As he went on the gantry, it genuinely looked, rather than kind of get to the end of the gantry and then push himself off it, which is what you'd expect, he expected there to be a bit more gantry than there was because he puts his foot down like it's going to be another step forward and then just goes, whoomph. Oof. I would have to watch multiple videos because either he did, but he's so far out over the water, he'd be fine anyway. Or that is actually the safest way to do it, is not to throw yourself, but to actually just let momentum and gravity carry you. I'll check out other recordings. There are plenty out there because, hey, it's been around 27 years and it's popular. We actually haven't really had much of a chance to talk about Waterworld as well. Like I, we've mentioned it sort of offhandedly over the course of this podcast. You've uh, sort of talked about your sort of reevaluating of the, the film because they did the Arrow uh, box sets for it. I honestly have not seen Waterworld since it was on TV in the 90s when it would have been like its first airing or so, like probably a few years after this, maybe 97, 98 or so. And I haven't seen it since. And I can, I'll be honest with you, I don't even think I gave it the full, uh, the full level of attention that it might deserve at that time. Because by the time I would have seen it, it was already a joke. It was already the punchline of Waterworld, the massive disaster that it was, the huge money hole that it was. You know, one of my favorite uh, gags of the Angry Video Game Nerd's career is when he talks about how there's a Waterworld game on the Virtua Boy. Waterworld is the only movie-based game on Virtual Boy, and doesn't it seem like a match made in heaven? It's a perfect analogy. An over-budget, over-hyped movie turned into a game on a gimmicky, overpriced anal atom bomb of a console exploding with diarrhea. But I have wondered whether or not I would appreciate it more now. I do re- I do need to rewatch it and I actually do I'm looking forward to a rewatch of it whether that will be I don't know man, you know probably a few years from now or so but I am I will at some point rewatch the movie and even then I'll probably say I'll watch it for the first time I I would genuinely say and if you are if you are interested and you want I will lend you my arrow set because and I know we've discussed about length of movies and some movies too long but you had the original theatrical cut of Waterworld which ran 135 minutes then ABC did their TV version which they split over two nights if I remember correctly which added an like 40 minutes of footage that had been cut from the original film but they obviously cut all the swearing because it was for TV then there was the Ulysses cut which is the one that's on the Arrow Blu-ray set which is the length of the TV edit but done as kind of like one mega movie but with the language and the scenes that were excised for you know 
censorship reasons from the TV cut. It's still not a good movie and you could argue it is still too long, but it makes sense and it works. And I'm more than happy to lend that to you because genuinely, you know, I'm sure you've still got a few sleepless nights coming up with the little one. So yeah, you know, I'll I'll lend you Waterworld. That'll help. <laughs> That'll help things, I'm sure. Also, very much a sign of the time, right at the end of this feature, Dom's lineup. Waterworld is by far the biggest entertainment spectacle to hit Los Angeles since the OJ Simpson trial, only slightly more realistic. Yeah, we're at that period of time. Are we Aren't before... We are we before or after the um, Goldust and Roddy Piper doing the uh, the OJ chase sequence at WrestleMania? I think we're after at this we're point, aren't we? We're after that, yeah. Oh, man, that, that aged like a fine murder. Pardon the expression. That was really <laughs> badly timed. Please cut that. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I do just want to say last note on the Waterworld thing is the whole, you know, Dom getting right to the meat of it, going, is the dye in the water that makes the water go red when they pee in it? Norm doesn't get flustered he's like no but we should totally put that in there because those actors are pissing in it all the time i loved norm here because norm is there's there was every chance that dom could have gone in there talked about you know the seaplane hitting bald scottish blokes with glasses and norm not really get on board with it him being like oh have you ever caught the actors weeing in the pool and norm's just on board for it he's totally on board with all these questions he's game for a laugh and it makes it such a better piece for it part of me thinks it's because the sort of person he has to be to work on a show like this and part of this is also probably the hundredth interview he's done on this bit you know just showing people these are the blinking lights these are the cctv so we make sure that actors aren't hit by jet skis and dom is asking something that is not Ooh, isn't that a lot of buttons? What does that button do? Dom is being Dom, and it's the same reason why some of his other interviews work so well. And it's something that, you know, I always try and do if I get the chance to do kind of a free-flowing interview is try and ask the unusual stuff. Try not to just repeat the same questions over and over. Because sometimes you get this, you get gold. You get someone that's just like, oh, cool, we're here to play. That's it for today. Don't forget, next week, Dean Holdsworth taking on Phil Babb, footballing it up the way God intended on Virtuous Striker in our grand final. Remember, between now and then, kids, life is like a sofa. It's great until some fat bloke sits on you. Bye-bye. It's not my favourite of the lines we've had. It's not my favourite of the outros we've had thus far. No, I mean, but, you know, life is like a sofa. It's great until some fat bloke sits on you. And hey, unless you're into that, no kink shaming. Absolutely. So that is the episode. That's episode seven of series five. Ash, um... We said last week's episode was a tale of two halves because the first half was really good and the second half wasn't quite so much. The second half of this, again, is very football-focused with the Celebrity Challenge, but we did have that Waterworld feature in the end. And it did feature what might end up being one of my favourite challenges of Series 5. What did you make of the episode as a whole? I'm higher on this episode than last week. I'm much higher on this episode because that first challenge, Three's a Crowd, wonderful stuff three separate consecutive games of puzzle bobble even if i disagree with how it was set up i like the presentation uh i like the fact that it was just dom and it was very much kind of a roy castle record breakers kind of setup and feel to it i thought the reviews were great we had some really fun reviews we saw hexen beyond heretic we saw victory boxing a game that i'd completely forgotten existed and in fact it looks like most of the internet has forgotten that one existed and also world series baseball which yeah okay baseball's not necessarily my thing but i've got a saturn right there and i can easily obtain a copy of it from somewhere and i might try it out so the reviews were really solid the football challenge was a lot of fun. It was really good. It was really entertaining. It was high action. It had all the goals we were missing from last week. And then we end 
with a look at Waterworld, the, the theme park experience, which, as I said, 27 years later, it's still out there in one form or another. That speaks to the longevity of that experience and how, you know, while Jaws may be gone and Back to the Future may be gone and Terminator may be gone, arguably better franchises for Universal than Waterworld, there is something about Waterworld that has staying power. Part of me wonders if it's because it's just such a well-oiled, rehearsed machine by this point. But getting the chance to nerd out with you about that, talk about Stuntman, somehow get onto Fury Road, all of that, you know, it it really took an episode I was already enjoying and means that actually I'm higher on this episode now than when we started talking about it. I'm much higher on this episode than I was last week. And I think a lot of that is down to that puzzle bubble challenge. But also, yeah, that was it was a really fun football challenge. It, a bit like remember back in series one when they had that sort of like six nil scream or whatever it was in the celebrity challenge. And it was just like it's so much fun because it's just constant goals going in. It was a lot of fun, and I thought that Phil Babb came across really well. Graham Lasso was really good, too. That Waterworld feature was really, really solid. The reviews, I'm, I'm not massively fussed on. The news didn't really do much for me, either. But there was so much good in this. I am past the mid-80s point on this. Uh, am I going as high as a DeLorean? Do you know what? I'm going to go I'm going DeLorean, if only just for that Puzzle Bubble challenge. I'm a DeLorean as well. So 88 for both of us. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. Or if you want some interaction in real time, some feedback in real time to talk with us, to talk with other listeners, other fans of gaming and pop culture and retro type stuff, you can join us on our Discord, a wonderfully supportive community, new people joining all the time, why don't you become one of them and if you want to support this podcast monetarily you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod where you'll get access to ucp extra which is this show format but about other shows from the 80s and 90s and our monthly community show under console nation at the five pound level you get next week's episode one week early and ad free and at the £10 level, you get a little bit bonus. Ash, what do they get? At the £10 level, they get our all-new under-consultation golden joystick Waggler mug, which will contain badges and stickers and retro trading cards and sweeties. And those are flying out the door to people that have been waiting oh so patiently. Thank you for your patience. They're leaving right now. And you also get your name shouted out in the credits like these fine folks, Xanderthal, William, Tom, Simon, Sean, Retro Fun for Everyone, Reese, Paul, Nick, Misha, Matty, Boo, Mark, Link, Kevin, Jamie, It's Mashley, Ian, Harriet, Manga Girl, Gordon, Debster, Gordon, Brandt, David Palmer, David Fisher, Darkside73, Cliff, Chrissy, Two Sticks, Arcadia, Wild Bill, Andrew and Adam D. Thank you all so much for listening. We love each and every single one of you and we will see you in seven days time for more Series 5. Take care, everyone. Good night. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.